Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Welcome to our fifth season. I hope you're all doing okay under the circumstances. Is your family well? Did you start any new hobbies? Well, as you might have guessed, we've been keeping busy watching documentaries with a whole slate coming up for our new season. I should probably introduce you to today's guests. I'm speaking with Joel Backen and Jennifer Abbott, directors of The New Corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel. The greed economy is killing us. We are so steeped in this commodification that it's hard to distinguish between being a consumer and being a citizen. Seeing the documentary The Corporation, it opened my eyes. Calling corporations psychopaths absolutely had an impact. Can we take the resources of corporations and get them to focus on the needs of the poorest? There is no such thing as corporate social responsibility. They're literally playing casino with life on Earth. The changes that we fear are coming faster than anybody thought. It's completely out of control. They really should need no introduction to TVO audiences. Their film, The Corporation, was a huge success when it came out in 2003. That doc, if you remember, looked at what the personality type of a major corporation would be and found that it basically meets all the criteria of a psychopath. Here's Joel Backen. Shortly after the film and book came out is I got all these invitations from business groups, uh, you know, CEO groups, uh, various kinds of industry organizations, um, and they wanted me to come and talk to them. And, and what I heard from them was, you know, thank you for making that film. We, we needed to hear that. The sequel, which picks up on the first film's provocative thesis, looks at how the corporation has evolved in the last two decades. Corporations have given themselves a makeover, rebranding as socially responsible corporate citizens. However, that rebranding has done nothing to solve the problems that increased corporate power has inflicted on the planet. Here's Joel again. Whether it's climate change, whether it's the decay of democracy, uh, inequality, racial and economic, um, all of these uh, all of these difficulties that we looked at in the film and that we we related to corporate power in the world have gotten worse. I spoke with Joel and Jennifer about why they chose to do a sequel in the first place, how corporations have tried to rebrand themselves, and how grassroots movements are pushing back. Stay with us. Jennifer and Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. How are you both managing during the pandemic? Oh, it's a little surreal for sure. Uh, having I have another film out right now as well, and it's you know, compared to other film releases, it's absolutely anticlimactic. But you know, all that said, compared to how others are are suffering in so many ways, it's it's really not. It's small potatoes in the big picture. Yeah, I, I I I would concur entirely. I mean, we've uh, uh, Rebecca and I have have sort of managed fine, uh, taken lots of walks, uh, you know, catching up on things around the house, and uh, yeah, compared to the plight of many in the world, and we show some of this in the film how how hard it's hitting African American and Latino communities in the United States, for example. 
um, yeah, we're we're doing great. Minor di- minor disappointment, you know, not to have a, <laughs> a live film festival and to be doing all the media from our basements, but you know, other than that. <laughs> Well, we'll get in. We'll get into some of that later. But I, I guess I want to start just with the subtitle of the film, the unfortunately necessary sequel. You know, normally when a movie has a sequel, it's because the first one was such a huge success, and and or there was more story to tell. And I, I guess I wonder what it, which it was in your case. Well, I think it was it was both of those. I mean, the first one was a success, and there was more story to tell. But the more story to tell uh, has a fairly unfortunate dimension to it which is that since we made the first film, many of the issues that we looked at have become much worse, Uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's the decay of democracy, uh, inequality, racial and economic, um, all of these uh, all of these difficulties that we looked at in the film and that we we related to corporate power in the world have gotten worse. And the corporation itself has become more powerful, has become more dangerous, uh, and has uh, somehow managed to do this by reconstituting its public image uh, as a benevolent institution that wants to save society and do social good. Um, So there was a lot that needed to be looked at that had changed since the first film, but also a lot uh, that had changed in in some very problematic ways. Yeah, I assume when you when you did the corporation back in 2003, I was in college when it came out. And I remember the the time, you know, it was the Iraq war. It was two years after 9-11. Obviously, the world has changed quite a bit since then. But did you kind of imagine that you would be covering a similar terrain 20 years later, Jennifer? Well, I had hoped not to. And again, that taps into our subtitle. I think the world was very different back then. Certainly, there were many problems but it felt like they were solvable. And, you know, for example, if we take the climate crisis, uh, which was a crisis then without question, but now it's a as existential crisis. Um, you know, we didn't, certainly I didn't anticipate that or hope that in so many arenas, as Joel just mentioned, uh, there would be a decline to the extent that we find ourselves here today. So, you know, it was certainly our hope that we would contribute to progressive uh, change in the world. And I think our first film did, uh, and many others as well. But, you know, it's it has certainly been, uh, in so many ways, a difficult 17 years. Well, the corporation, the, your first film, it asked what kind of a person a corporation would be and found that it meets all the criteria of a psychopath. Did you uh, receive any blowback to that thesis? You know, it, it's interesting because the blowback that received was that we received wasn't exactly the kind that I would have expected. I I would have expected that, you know, we put this film out there and the book and and that the business world would, you know, go up in arms and we're not psychopaths, you know, and and that's wrong. And and you guys are a bunch of radicals and, you know, all of this. But <laughs> but instead, what happened shortly after the film and book came out is I got all these invitations from business groups, uh, you know, CEO groups, uh, various kinds of industry organizations. Um, and they wanted me to come and talk to them. And 
and what I heard from them was, you know, thank you for making that film. We we needed to hear that. You know, we we know that we've been operating in ways that are um, uh, psychopathic, that are self interested, that that don't have sufficient regard for social and environmental concerns, and and so we're we're changing. You know, if we were psychopaths, and maybe you're right that we were. We're going to reform ourselves now. We're going to become sustainable. We're going to become truly socially responsible, um, and we're going to change our game. And 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 that is the new corporation that the title refers to. It's almost as though our film and the various uh, movements at the time we made it that were critical of corporations. Um, it's almost as if they they did cause a rethink in the corporate world. And the corporate world said we're going to change. The, and, and, and that's part of the reason we needed to do the sequel is to point out that though they're talking a much better game now and in many ways acting a better game, you know, really taking seriously some of the things that uh, were con- that we were concerned about in the first film and that people were concerned about, uh, despite the fact that they're doing all that, they haven't changed fundamentally and and that to the extent they're talking a better game and walking a slightly better walk, it's not nearly enough uh, to address the problems that they did create and that they continue to create and make worse. So, so the response was this this weird kind kind of um, yeah, thank you for doing it. Um, but then the response in some ways has been more dangerous uh, than had they just sort of railed against us and gotten angry at us. Well, that rebranding of corporations is socially responsible. Um, did that, so was that sort of beginning after the film came out, or do you think that was sort of already happening and they, they kind of saw your film and uh, maybe it gave them more ideas on how to rebrand more, to be more socially responsible? It's not that they weren't socially responsible prior to that, but what they did around 2005, as we point out in the film, is to say, we're now going to take that stuff really seriously. We're going to put it at the core of our businesses. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to ride that horse a lot harder now. I was actually going to say exactly that, um, that around 2005, there was a discernible shift. And we cover that in our film, Peter DeVerne. Um, from UBC uh, talks about that. And then, of course, we also have John Coyne, uh, the the VP of Unilever in our film, also discussing that shift. Uh, I think what's really, you know, Robert Reich in our film also says there is no such thing as corporate social responsibility. And I think that's a very, very impactful statement if you really think about it, because it's not fanciful. It's not an opinion. It's actually true in the sense that corporations aren't at liberty of, to put other priorities above shareholder value and increasing shareholder value. So uh, I hope that we've done a good job in terms of laying that out in the first film and the second film, actually. Well, you mentioned John Coyne from Unilever. I'm also thinking of uh, a former CEO of BP Oil, uh, Lord John Brown. Uh, both appear in the film, and I was wondering why, what, if, what, what you had to say to them to, I guess, get them to agree to come on on the film. Because I can't imagine uh, they were, or I, well, maybe you can tell me, were they like skeptical? Were they a little um, nervous about appearing? Like, what was your, I guess, your pitch to them? I think it relates back to um, to what we were talking about earlier, and and that is they 
feel that they are on the moral high ground. I mean, uh, both, you know, Unilever and BP made sort of serious branding efforts to uh, to appear on the moral high ground and to embrace social responsibility and all of that. And so in approaching them, it was really just a case of, of telling them the truth, which is we are interested in this phenomenon. We're interested in how uh, your corporations and corporations more generally have really sort of embraced these ideas of themselves as good actors over the last decade and a half or so. And we want to talk to you about that. And in John Coyne's case, certainly, I mean, he was he was a fan of the first film in the spirit of what I was describing before, that, that he was like, yeah, you know, that was an outrageous statement to call corporations psychopaths. But, um, you know, but I, you know, it was, it was a wake up call for us. It, it you know, it, it put something on the table that needed to be on the table. And, and we've been addressing that. In Lord Brown's case, I mean, we didn't have BP in the first film, but in my first book, I spent nearly a chapter on BP and on showing the contradiction of uh, Lord Brown's sort of avowed beliefs about the environment and the way BP was operating back in the late 90s and early 2000s. He still granted an interview, and I give him great credit for that. Um, I think that people in the corporate sector feel that they are on solid ground when they say, that they are concerned about doing good. And I think they feel that because I think as people, as human beings, people like Lord Brown and John Coyne do genuinely have those beliefs. I don't think they're being insincere. I think they want a better world. I think where the difference comes is that they are perhaps underestimating the extent to which the institutions they work for will not allow them to put those beliefs into any kinds of practices that in any way threaten the primary goal of profit making. And it's that contradiction that, that I think, um, you know, the, the way that they would describe that contradiction and we would is probably where the real difference lies. But we are not saying that they're insincere. And I don't think they're saying that we're completely off base in our criticism. Jennifer, you know, it's in the film that you show, there's a, a playbook that corporations sort of uh, use to, I guess, exercise their power. How did you how did you guys, I guess, um, come up with that playbook? Well, that is a great question and one we had ourselves for a very long time. I mean, obviously, for the first film, we had uh, the structuring device of the psychopath checklist and you know, that and we felt a lot of pressure for the second film to have a similarly clever device. And we experimented with many, actually. We experimented with playing with the idea of gaslighting or it being a game like Monopoly or um, let's see, there were just so many devices that we experimented with until we eventually did settle on the playbook. And I think um, really that was because of its simplicity in some ways. The film is very complex. It, ha it 
It introduces a lot of ideas. It's very dense. I don't think too dense, and I don't think you know it's inaccessible in any way. But the other devices that we tried uh, just didn't streamline the ideas the way the playbook did. And uh, the other problem with the device that we were looking for is the difference in the playbook to the checklist. The playbook is conjectural in the sense that it is our guess of the plays corporations are making. So it's, it's a different perspective and that sort of infused a more, more um, difficulty in settling on a device. Hmm. Well, Joe, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, just about um, the real desire that some of these CEOs show in terms of, uh, of thinking of themselves of being on the right side of, of things. And, you know, the two people that I actually thought of were Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, which is the investment bank, and then uh, Bill Gates from Microsoft. Um, you know, both, uh, I think, in the, are shown in the film to express, you know, a real desire to change uh, either, well, help people. I mean, in, in, in Jamie Dimon's case, you know, he wanted to revitalize Detroit, which was hit really hard by the financial crisis. And, you know, Bill Gates has invested billions in, in Africa in terms of, uh, uh, you know, education. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would look at those as being very noble things. And, and, you know, I think in the case of Bill Gates, I think that they have actually done a lot in terms of eradicating polio in, in parts of the developing world. I'm wondering if you think that corporations... To what extent maybe they, they are doing uh, things that governments just can't or aren't able to do? I wonder what you think of that idea. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that if you just look at it in a kind of in, a, in its own right, uh, any given measure of a corporation um, or of a philanthropist like Bill Gates, uh, you know, setting up a job training program in Detroit or providing uh, vaccines in Africa, um, or, uh, you know, not using as much water or moving to green sources of energy. All of these things in their own right look good. Um, but I think what we're talking about in the film and what we're talking about when, when we're looking at this new corporation movement is the question, do we want to have a society where the protection of public interests is in democratic hands and where democratic institutions have the levers and the buttons that they need to ensure the public interest is protected, including from uh, the profit-seeking uh, behaviors of corporations. Do we wanna have that kind of society where health, education, uh, all of these things are provided to citizens by virtue of their being citizens, not by virtue of whether they can pay for it as consumers? Or do we want to have a society that is run by purportedly benevolent corporations, philanthropists, and billionaires? Technology is neutral. Um, and in many ways, it's great. But there's a difference between the technology and allowing a few powerful players to manipulate it for their own ends. So we've gone from this wide open world that opened up all of these possibilities for people to create things, to share information, to share ideas, and it has collapsed into these walled gardens that are controlled by a few very powerful players. Um, and I think that is really the choice because the model you know, it's not just that Jamie Dimon or Bill Gates are doing this and that here and there. They have models of how the world should be governed. 
They use their great power, for example, to promote privatization of education in Bill Gates' case. Uh, in the example, for example, in, in our film of Bridge International Academies, or in terms of all the philanthropic work that Bill Gates does in the United States to promote privatization of schools. They want to have teacherless classrooms. But the teacher is the single most important and expensive part of education. In the tech industry's dream, if the teacher is removed from the equation, then you can cut costs dramatically. Um, Jamie Dimon is busy, uh, you know, lobbying the Trump administration for more tax cuts, for more deregulation, for more privatization, which his bank helps finance and profit from. So the point is that these good acts that may look good in themselves are part of a much larger program. And it's a larger program that is, and, and again, th this isn't opinion or conjecture, this is a fact, it is anti-democratic because it is technically about replacing what democratic governments do with non-democratic entities called corporations and philanthropists. You know, Bill Gates is not accountable to anybody. It's up to him to decide whether he wants to deal with polio or whether he wants to help privatize schools or whether he wants to just keep his money. Those, those, are, those are his decisions. And he's, he would rather have that decision making in his power than give his money to governments in the form of taxation and let them decide democratically what they should do with that money. A lot of folks in the Valley believe that the companies they're building are kind of replacements of government. I think if we don't push back against the kind of agenda that these companies have, we're going to live in a world in which they are governing us privately through the profit motive, but governing us. And so what this film is really about is the fact that we're at a crossroads and that under the guise of doing good, a lot of people with a lot of power and a lot of institutions with a lot of power are pushing a model of global governance that is fundamentally undemocratic and fundamentally market driven. And we think that's not a good thing. And that doesn't mean that if you look at this act or that act, it, it, it isn't good. I'm not going to say it's a bad thing for a company to move to renewables. But when you situate it in the broader context, and I think the, the best statement that kind of encompasses this in the film, and it comes at about the halfway point, is when Richard Edelman, who is probably the world's leading business guru, and is also seen as a nice guy, he's seen as one of the good guys, you know, the new corporation, I want to save the world, all of that. And when he says just baldly, I'm not much of a believer in political democracy. I believe in the power of the marketplace. What? You know, that's where we're going? Well, if we care about democracy, we should be terrified by this. You actually led me to where I want to go next, which is just the, the rise of, I guess, grassroots movements uh, that are, I guess, pushing for, you know, a more democratic uh, way of, of living uh, and, and trying to push, uh, sorry, trying to, I guess, curb the power of corporations. And, uh, you know, you feature some of them and you feature also these uh, 
you know, more socialist or progressive politicians that have been elected around in city councils and in Seattle and in Barcelona. Um, maybe you could just tell, talk a little bit about some of the successes that you've you've been noticing um, that, that you feature in the film. I don't know, Jennifer, if you want to speak to that. Sure. Um, well, I think it's a noticeable shift uh, within activist circles. And Micah White, the co-founder with Kale Lassen of Occupy Wall Street, says it in our film, you know, Occupy Wall Street was a constructive failure, but it taught us that we needed to pair protest with gaining sovereignty. And I think that, you know, since the Occupy movement around the world, or the movement of squares, as it's also known, uh, you can see the rise of, or rather the, the crossover of many activists and uh, people who would self-identify as, you know, challengers of the system, crossing over and running for government. And of course, in our film, we feature uh, Shama Sawant, uh, city councillor of Seattle, Ada Kalu, the first woman mayor of Barcelona, who prior to becoming the mayor was part of M15 and uh, fought very hard uh, against evictions. We have, interestingly, we also feature Chris Barrett, who is a, a New Jersey local politician now, but in our first film, uh, he was actually profiled when he was only 18 as one of the first, as the first corporate sponsored college student. So basically he and uh, a partner uh, got corporate sponsorship to go to university and they were paid to wear hats or, you know, with logos or drive various cars, et cetera. So I thought that was very clever of them, by the way. <laughs> I wish oh, I had thought of that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, he, he, he actually didn't in the end think it was so clever because he, you know, when he saw our film, he, he understood we, you know, we, we kind of were taking them to task a little bit. And sure, yeah. uh, he, 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 it was the first time that he had been exposed to the, you know, the point of view of the first film. And, you know, we show how it transformed him and how he became a Bernie supporter and then, um, you know, eventually ran for office um, and is now a progressive New Jersey politician. But I think, you know, what's really interesting about, well, there's several things, obviously. I mean, one of them is that there are, and it, you know, it's international and much of it is uh, civic politicians, so mayors being elected, but not exclusively, of course. Uh, we have Jacinda Ardine in New Zealand as a, as a shining example, but in many, many instances, you know, they were not forecasted to win. So they, you know, AOC, for example, uh, her first victory, you know, all of these uh, progressive politicians, you know, that was just, it was a big surprise that they were getting into office. I think that's one thing uh, to know. But the second thing I think that's really um interesting is that uh, you have a situation where prior, well, in the last 40 years, neoliberalism has really done a great job of dissing government, of having us believe that government is the enemy, that it should be as small as possible, that it is not an efficient way to run a society. We should rely on markets. 
And it feels to me that there's this transition that is occurring at, at the same time as these progressive politicians are being elected, where we are once again believing in governments to create common good, you know, governments by the people, for the people, and of the people. And, you know, that is a very important shift for us to make to once again aspire to democracy because it is ultimately governments who can act in a democratic way, right? Uh, who, yeah. can, who, who can be voted in and out of office, wherein, as Joel points out, we, can, we have no ability to vote Bill Gates in or out of office. So, Well, unfortunately, Joel had to leave us, but Jennifer, we're just going to uh, wrap up uh, with asking just a few more questions. We've talked a bit about um, progressive politicians, you know, who've, who've come to uh, prominence, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, and you feature a couple of them in the film, uh, Kashama Savant from Seattle, as you mentioned. Um, the only thing, the other thing I meant, I noticed with these act, these activists who then turned politician is they get elected at the, 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 the local city council level, or I guess in um, Ocasio-Cortez's uh, case, you know, Congress, but on the national level, we still tend to see you know, very far right populist leaders come to power. I'm thinking of obviously Donald Trump and uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. What, what what's going on here? Like, why why is it that that, that I guess the, the more progressive left wing hasn't really been able to crack the national level yet? Oh, I actually I would actually I would say that's not entirely true. Okay. Um, we have Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. We have a feminist. Uh, the feminist leader and, in fact, all of the um, four or five most influential politicians in Iceland are women and progressives. But without question, as you point out, um, there is a very, very concerning rise of right-wing populists. And, you know, I don't know if, I mean, it, it is deeply concerning and you know, is it the rise of fascism? It, it could very well be. So it is a very important and critical moment in time that we act to safeguard our democracies and to do everything we can to reinvigorate them. Hmm. Well, that's a good point about uh, Jacinda Ardern in, um, in New Zealand. I, I guess I was just thinking in terms of, you know, um, Western, well, that is a Western country, but I guess I'm thinking of, you know, the United States because it is such a, you know, it's a superpower and, and, and because uh, it has such a, a, a massive influence on what happens in the rest of the world. Um, you know, Joe, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, he did pretty well, but he didn't, he still wasn't able to crack the, grab the nomination. And I guess I wonder, you know, going forward, I mean, if, if Joe Biden is, is elected uh, president of the United States, um, do you, hope to see, a, I guess, a sea change uh, with regards to how um, uh, American policy goes forward in terms of, I guess, uh, you know, curbing corporate power and that sort of thing? Oh, gosh, no, I don't think there will be a sea change. What I think is going to happen if Biden and Harris are elected is we have a chance. <laughs> you know, we um, all of the problems are not simply going to evaporate because, you know, if, if Trump is not elected. But if Trump is elected, and this is why many people call this the, the most important election in history, really, you know, there's a very good chance that we will hit uh, four degrees um, 
temperature rise if we continue on the current trajectory, which really means that we face an unlivable planet. Uh, and, you know, that's just one area which is of the gravest concern in terms of um, Trump being enabled to continue as the president of the United States. So I just feel that if we, if Biden and Harris are elected, then we have a chance to reclaim democracy. We have a chance to uh, start to look, address the inequalities in society today. We have a chance of looking at the outsized power of corporations and in particular, the high tech corporations. You know, we just can push them towards the progressive policies of the Bernie Sanders and of the AOCs who are very much, um, you know, politicians who understand the outside power of corporations and the destructive nature of corporate capitalism and are looking at ways uh, to address the existential crises that we face uh, through public policy. So, you know, I, I don't think we should be naive in thinking that just because Trump is gone, the problems will be gone. In many ways, Trump is a symptom of a system that's been building for 40 years and arguably longer, but in particular, the last 40 years. He is not the cause of many of these problems, though he has certainly made them worse. Well, congrats on the film. I, I really enjoy it. I hope in 17 years the situation is much different. Uh, I don't know if we'll see a th- this will be a trilogy, but <laughs> you never know. Uh, thank you so much. I hope not, <laughs> <but> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Th- thank you so much for your interest. Thanks, Jennifer. And that's the podcast. The new corporation is on the festival circuit now and will be appearing on Crave at the end of the year. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at tvo.org. Or you can follow me on Twitter at ColinLS81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and series producer Katie O'Connor. We'll catch you at the next screening.